As many of you know, we spent the last four Sundays in Matthew 1, 1 through 17, looking at Matthew's genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're just going to finish up Matthew 1 this morning um, as we look at Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. When you get there, you can go ahead and just stand with us for the reading of God's holy and precious Word out of respect and honor for God and His Word. Again, we're looking at Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. I'm going to read this now. And as we read, let's, let's listen with joy and with wonder to the story as Matthew records it, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you please help us this morning to hear and believe with joy and with wonder that Christ has come to be God with us and to save us from our sins. As we hear this, would you, would you so fill us with joy and wonder? Would you so uh, ignite our hearts with, with gratitude and with grace that we might celebrate this Christmas that Christ has come and we might celebrate as we're meant to, knowing that he has saved us from our sins indeed. In his name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Well, you've probably seen your, your fair share of nativity scenes recently. And several churches in the area have very large nativity scenes out in the outside and in front of their buildings right now. Some have even had live nativity scenes, which is always quite interesting. Uh, maybe you have family members, family uh, with smaller nativity scenes set up as decor around their house this time of year. Perhaps you've got one in your own house. I grew up in a household with several kind of um, nativity scenes that, that went up every year around this season. We had a, a kind of stuffed nativity scene that my, my grandmother actually made for us when we were children, and we were allowed to play with that one. And, and then we had one made out of uh, twigs and twine and other earthen-like materials. It was maybe a bit more traditional. Uh, my dad and, and I got one uh, for my mother from Haiti when we were there uh, one year, made out of colorful clay figurines. And 
And they're all very different, but they all had a lot in common too. There was Joseph and there was Mary and the animals and the shepherds. There was the angel and, and there were the wise men, which may not be all that entirely accurate. Uh, and then the little Christ child, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's all of what you might expect. But then a while back, I, I, I came across some depictions of the nativity from uh, the Byzantine tradition that I found to be somewhat peculiar. In some ways, they were similar to the others. You know, there's the same figurines, were, or the same figures, rather, were there, save the wise men. But when you looked at, at, at the Christ child, you, you noticed something very odd. It seems unfitting. You see that instead of being placed in a manger, he's actually placed in a stone coffin. And instead of being wrapped in swaddling clothes, he's actually wrapped in this traditional burial shroud. And instead of this whole scene taking place in a stable, it actually takes place in a carved out cave like a tomb. As I considered these peculiarities, I, I came to see that we're actually trying to communicate something very important to us, something that our, our, you know, sometimes our sentimental takes on Christmas might not so readily be mindful of, something so enormously important and something that our passage speaks to this morning. The passage this morning, when it speaks of the birth of Christ, it doesn't emphasize cute or sentimental themes we, we find emphasized so much this time of year. It doesn't, deal, it doesn't make a big deal about fluffy animals or wise men or the cuteness of a baby wrapped in cloths. It, it seeks to show us this all-important reality that the reason this Christ child was born, the reason the Son of God came was actually to save us from our sins. The main emphasis of this passage is that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. That's the main idea that we want to look at here briefly as we walk through the story of how Jesus came, the Spirit's miraculous conception, and the Savior we sinners need. First, the story of how Jesus came. Verse 18 begins our passage. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, now, Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, had been betrothed to Joseph, and, and betrothal was this kind of commitment to be married between two people. We have something like this today, we call it engagement, you all know what that is. When two people are engaged to be married, they've declared their intent to marry one another. But betrothal was, was a little different than that, in that it was more of an intense uh, commitment than engagement is. It, it, it involved a higher level of commitment between the two parties. When two people were in this stage of betrothal, they were almost as good as married. They just hadn't sealed the deal yet. They hadn't come together for the ceremony and consummation of the marriage. And, and they were almost as good as married, though. And thus, infidelity in this stage of betrothal was an act of betrayal on par with adultery. In fact, it, it was considered, it was viewed as adultery just as breaking off the betrothal would have been considered divorce, as we see here. And so you can, you can imagine when Joseph got word that Mary was pregnant, he would have been, he would have been quite shocked because they, they hadn't come together yet. His, his assumption would have been, she's, she's been unfaithful to me. So verse 19 goes on to say that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
And here, Matthew's really trying to show us something of, of Joseph's character, isn't he? Joseph was a just man, Matthew says. He was righteous, but he also wants to see that Matthew was merciful. He was, he was just in that he, he sought to divorce Mary, understandably assuming that she had committed adultery. He was just, he was righteous in that he, he wanted no part in a false or demoralized marriage. He was a righteous man who wanted a righteous wife. Yet notice that Joseph was also a merciful man. He was merciful, Matthew wants to see, to, to see here, in that he sought to do it quietly. At that time, Mary would have been brought into shame for her adultery, as, as it says here, meaning she, should, she would have been brought into some sort of public disgrace, possibly even legal penalties. penalties. She, she possibly even might have been killed for this assumed adultery. But Joseph, being a merciful man, he doesn't want this to happen to Mary, and so he sought to divorce her here, but he wanted to do it quietly. But then as we read on, you also see that Joseph was a wise man. He didn't make any rash or quick decisions here. He took time to, to consider this matter, to think on it, to pray over it, to dwell on it before he came into any final decisions. And, and while considering this matter, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream to give him this message saying, Joseph, son of David, do, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As we find in verses 24 to 25, Joseph did precisely as the angel instructed. He did take Mary to be his wife. They didn't come together to, to consummate their marriage until after the birth of this child. And when this child was born, Joseph, as the adoptive father, named him Jesus. And that's the story of how Jesus came into the world as Matthew records it here. And then there's something important that Matthew wants us to see in the story, and Matthew wants us to see this crucial reality that the conception of Jesus is the result of the Holy Spirit's miraculous work. Look with me next at the Spirit's miraculous conception. You know, when each of our children were born, at some point, some well-meaning person would inevitably remark on how wonderful they were by saying something like, isn't she just a miracle? Isn't, isn't he just miraculous? And and I wouldn't say anything, but the thought would cross my mind, no. No, they're, they're not. They're really wonderful. But they got here through this actually very natural and ordinary process. I won't explain it right now. But literally hundreds of thousands of babies are born every single day. It's not a miracle when babies are conceived in birth. It's actually very natural. But when we say that Jesus' conception was miraculous, was supernatural, we really mean it. And this is something Matthew really wants us to see here. Look at verse 18 where he writes, Before Mary and Joseph came together, Mary was found to be a child, listen, from the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, Matthew repeats this phrase when he's writing about the angel's instruction to Joseph. He records that that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In verse 23, Matthew uh, records or, or, or or quotes this prophecy from the book of Isaiah. He's trying to give us some explanation as to how this isn't just coming out of nowhere. This has been planned and prophesied about. He quotes Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So, so Mary was a virgin, and the way that the Lord Jesus was conceived within her 
is by this miracle of the Holy Spirit. And we won't try to explain this scientifically. You can get into some weird, pretty weird places with that kind of thing. We're not going to try to explain how this happened. We just know that by the Holy Spirit, this conception was miraculous. And Matthew clearly wants us to see this here. This is a, a very important truth to us Christians. And we believe in the miraculous conception of virgin birth. Scripture teaches it, as is obvious here. And it's been such a central truth in the Scriptures and in Christian history that our creeds even confess it, right? As Christians, we all confess the Apostles' Creed. We do that as a church here on Sunday mornings. We confess, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Why is this so crucial to us? Why is this crucial to the biblical writers? Why is this important to us as Christians? Well, it's important to us in part because Friends, we we need a Savior and Messiah who is innocent of and uncorrupted by the sin of our race. We need a Messiah who is born without that sin that runs through the veins of Adam's race, as, as one theologian, Michael Reeves, puts it. He says, ever since Genesis 4, men have fathered children in their own sinful image and likeness. Flesh has given birth to flesh. What was needed was a new thing. Christ must be born of woman. He must have no human father in whose image and likeness he would otherwise be. Like Adam, he must have no father but God. A virgin would need to conceive him by the pure power of the Holy Spirit and would thus give birth to a spiritual holy one. He's saying we need the Son of God Himself to step into our humanity to save us, but we need Him to be and remain without the sin that we all inherit and mimic from our first father, Adam. We need Him to go to the cross as an innocent one, as the innocent one, so that He can take upon Himself our sins and being punished for us, grant us His own innocence. We need a Savior born to us with no natural father, but as one who is the offspring of our heavenly Father. Now, I know that, that there are many who find it hard to believe in this, this claim, this claim of a miraculous and virginal conception and birth, and with it, really, the, the claim to all miracles. Some view this to be a preposterous story because they don't think that miracles happen or are actually even possible. And, and some of us Even those of us who are Christians can sometimes struggle to believe in miraculous claims such as this. So it's important for for us as Christians to think through matters like this because, well, some of us here don't believe this. We all know people who don't believe this. And and also, since we Christians are are not entirely free from doubt ourselves, we need to address matters like this for our own hearts and minds. And so it's worth addressing this briefly this morning. And I, I really... I want to get behind what's, I want to get to what's behind this rejection. Why, why do some think that miracles are impossible or implausible? Why are miracles so difficult for some of us to believe in? Sometimes miracles like this, miraculous claims like this, rather, are, are disbelieved because, you know, we've never actually witnessed an obvious miracle ourselves. So some of us struggle to believe because we've never witnessed an obvious miracle ourselves. To that, we just have to say that there are all sorts of things that we believe in that we've never personally witnessed or experienced ourselves. That's not a good reason to not believe in something. I personally, I believe in the existence of Mongolia. 
I believe in the existence of the Oval Office. I believe in, in the existence of the Oval Office. I, I, I believe in, in the existence of... I, I've never stepped foot in Mongolia, though. I've never stepped foot in the Oval Office. I've never seen the Mona Lisa with my own two eyes. And yet I'm not considered crazy for believing that those things exist. Because having never experienced or personally witnessed something is not a sufficient reason for not believing in it. And likewise, having never witnessed a miracle is not a reason to disbelieve disbelieve in their existence. Others might find it difficult to believe in the possibility of miracles on the basis of science. Thinking that our scientific advancements in this age have shown miracles to be impossible. And yet, we should say to that, that 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 really is a misapplication of science. The task of science is to observe, test, and thereby understand what is natural and ordinary in creation. The scientific scientific task does not speak to what is supernatural or extraordinary. To try to disprove or prove the existence of miracles via the scientific method is actually like trying to use your gas gauge to determine how much air you have in your tires. It just doesn't do that. Furthermore, the, the claim that miracles can't exist is itself a claim that can't be scientifically proven. You can't observe that claim or test it via the scientific method. Thus, the claim that miracles can't exist, it's it's actually not a scientific fact. It's actually a philosophical presupposition. It's actually a faith commitment. And then lastly, just consider this. If you believe that God exists, if you believe He's there, that He created this world, does it really seem like that much of a stretch to believe that He can do miracles? If He was so powerful so as to create this world and everything in it, Is it really so hard to believe that he can do miraculous things within the created order? Of course not. The the God who created this, this world and all of its natural processes and patterns, who created these processes and patterns of children being conceived and birthed, he must also be a God who is capable of causing a child to be born apart from that process. And thus the claim that he did here in the birth of Jesus Christ is not preposterous, it's plausible, it's, it's absolutely believable, and that's good because it's actually very good news that he did so. Because he did so in order that we would be saved from our sins. There's a lot more that we could say, we need to move on to see here the salvation we sinners need. The angel's instruction to Joseph here, he, he tells Joseph that Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Angel tells Joseph that as the adoptive father, he's to give this child the name Jesus. And this name is meant to reveal the child's mission in life. Jesus is a name which means God saves. Jehovah saves. And Joseph is to name this child Jehovah Saves because that is what this child has come to do, to save us from our sins. The reality that we human beings are sinners, it's an unpleasant but an unavoidable truth. It's one we we all like to suppress at times, but we can't in all honesty deny. We're we're all sinners. Our experience confirms what Romans 3.10 says. None is righteous. No, not one. 
Romans 3.23 reiterates, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners in need of divine grace. It's an inescapable reality for us. And we all know this, even in an age like ours, wherein concepts of right and wrong, good and evil, are increasingly being challenged or even denied. Even in a time like ours, wherein consciences are increasingly being seared or dulled to the truth concerning wrong and right, the reality is that deep down, each and every single one of us knows that in ourselves and in our lives, something is just not right. We know we haven't always said or done what is right. We know we've said things that ought to have been left unsaid. We know that we've also done things that ought to have been left undone. And vice versa, you know, we've sinned by omission and by commission. We've not said and done things that we ought to have said and done. And we know that these sins don't spring forth from hearts that are otherwise good because fruit doesn't Bad fruit doesn't come from good roots. We know that instead, the evil words and actions in our lives come from hearts that are as black as night and hard as stone. And thus we know that we need and even long for, we long for forgiveness and salvation. We see this longing so, plain, so plainly in humanity. I remember some time ago coming across the words of, of author and atheist Margarita Lasky who once said that what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. A well-known director and outspoken atheist, Woody Allen, said something similar once. He, he was once asked in an interview, if there were a God and you could hear him say one thing to you, what would it be? He responded by saying, I would love to hear three words, I forgive You, we want forgiveness. We know we need it. We long for it. And the good news of Christmas is this. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. He's come to bring the forgiveness of sins and the salvation that we all so desperately need and desire. And he's come to do it in a way that shows forth to us that God is both just and merciful. God is both just and merciful. God is just. He's not willing to simply overlook or ignore the reality of our sin. Our sins demand justice. But he's also merciful and that he's willing himself to come in order to bear the justice we deserve for our sins. He's willing to come to be our Emmanuel, God with us, in order to save us. He's come to be born of a virgin. He's come unstained by the filth of our sins. He's come to live the life that we all should have lived. Jesus doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need salvation from sin because he's not guilty and doesn't stand condemned in his sin. But as the only guiltless one who doesn't deserve condemnation from heaven, Jesus took upon himself our guilt and heaven's condemnation for it. And he did it on a cross. On the cross, he, he took our sins and guilt and condemnation apart from, or upon himself, rather, so that he might offer us the relief we need from it all, to offer us forgiveness, to grant us the salvation we so desperately need, so that the just and merciful God of heaven can say over us when we trust in him, forgiven. 
righteous, saved. You see, friends, this is why those Christians so long ago depicted the Christ child as being laid in a stone coffin and wrapped in burial clothes and dwelling in a tomb. They were seeking to show those who view these nativity scenes that the Son of God came to bear the weight of our sin and guilt upon Himself in death. They wanted to show us that He was conceived in order to hang on that cross. They wanted to show us that this child was born to die and that for our sins. Friends, this Christmas, amid all of our traditions and enjoyments in this day, may we take time to celebrate and to bask in this warm glow of this reality that God has so loved us, that He came to be God with us, and that He's come to be God with us in order to save us from our sins and bring us the salvation and forgiveness we so desperately desire and need. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have since your Son, our Savior, to be our Emmanuel, to be God with us, and that He's come not to be God with us in judgment, but in salvation. That He has come to be Jesus, Jehovah saves. We pray that as we celebrate that reality this day, that it would be pressed so deeply in our hearts that we would be overwhelmed with the gravity and grace of it, that we respond with gratefulness and with lips and lives that show forth your praise as we transition to the table now. We pray that we would behold this reality anew and afresh and that we would remember it with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.